The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. You're watching Sportbox. Let's get into your headlines this hour. Markets, a big feature. The Dow on track for its eighth negative week in a row, not seen since 1932, while the S&P 500 sits on the brink of bear market territory. Beijing cutting borrowing costs in a bid to prop up the housing market as the world's second largest economy struggles with COVID disruptions. U.S. Congress approves a $40 billion Ukraine aid package for G7 nations commit to almost $20 billion in budget support as the international community rallies together. It is about closing Ukraine's short-term liquidity gap. We are trying, in the group of the G7 and beyond, together with the international institutions, to continue financing Ukraine's state functions with our resources. And Credit Suisse reiterating its support for its CEO, Thomas Gottstein, as a major shareholder calls for his head. after a big setback on markets you do get a day of recovery that just didn't happen yesterday recession fear is still lurking investors concerned about the pace of tightening from the federal reserve and what that could do to economic growth and you could see it was another setback for major markets 200 odd points to the downside for the dow adding to losses this week three quarters of one percent down for the trade the s p a little bit more contained than the dow as you can see and the nasdaq minimal losses here versus what you had on some of the other major averages just down a quarter of one percent so somewhat contained don't forget this was the part of the market that bore the brunt of the selling a day early near on five percent stripped off the nasdaq but still a continuation of the theme of reading that we've seen on these major markets. A quick look at the US performance over the course of the week. You can see, uh, given the earlier buying that we had, that optimistic trading session that transpired before the fairly strong selling uh, the day earlier, we saw the markets actually put on a bit of early green for the trading week, which has minimized some of the selling pressure. But you can still see we've got 3.5% off the NASDAQ, 3% down for the S&P, and near on that for the Dow across the course of the trading week. Let's get into trading. This is uh, how we're performing. We have slipped a uh, fair territory on this 10-year uh, yield. Don't forget we're marching up to the 3% mark early in the week at 2.84 where we're at now at. So we're just pulling back from those ranges and 2.62 on that two years. So the uh, recession concerns that have been lurking in the market now just starting to show up to an extent on the bond market where we've peeled off some very stubborn levels that we haven't moved from. So that is just worth bearing in mind to see whether we move any further from this point uh, 2.84 mark, whether we stray further to the downside. And let's take a look at the dollar and see whether that slight softening up in the yields has had any bearing here. We're at 124.51 on sterling dollar, so sterling on the back foot this morning. Euro, but uh, we did march up, but don't forget 104 has been some of the lower ranges on euro dollar this week. So 105 
1.2572, even though we have some slippage morning session. Dollar on the back foot versus the Japanese yen, and it is gaining versus the Chinese currency. US futures, let's just take a look to see what's in store. The early mood music on Wall Street is looking a little bit positive after a couple of days of selling. You can see on all three major indices, we are tilting positive at this point. 184 on the Dow, so that's a fairly solid position at this stage. So wasn't that fascinating? So all the way through this, we've been told that the Fed can achieve a soft landing here because the labour market remains strong and ultimately the fundamentals are underpinning resilience in the US economy. Yesterday we saw initial claims that were worrying, we saw a Philly Fed survey that was worrying, we even saw some weakness coming into the housing market here. I wonder how convinced the market is that we're going to get that soft landing now. Yeah. When you think about messaging, it's not like the Federal Reserve is going to come out and say we're going to uh, have to really apply the break here and it's going to trigger a hard landing. I mean, that's just not the messaging you ever get from central banks, is it? So uh, the soft landing, uh, that is just purely optimistic at this point. If you look back over history, trying to tackle this level of inflation to this extent, it does bring about a hard landing, does bring about a recession. Yeah, the history books are not very convincing when it comes to central banks being able to achieve that perfect poise. Uh, and that's perhaps why we've now got several Wall Street strategists who are trimming back their year-end S&P targets over fears that the Fed's rate increases may actually tip the economy into a recession. Deutsche Bank is the latest bank to cut its official target, now expecting the S&P 500 to hit 3,000 by year-end if the U.S. economy falls into a recession in the near future. Speaking to CNBC's Steve Leisman, the Kansas City Fed President Esther George says uh, while it's been a choppy week for markets, it won't change the Fed's rate hiking plan. This is a time of uncertainty. It's been a rough week in the equity markets. And I think the combination of the uncertainty going on in the world, the fact that the Fed is beginning uh, a rate hike uh, regime causes investors to try to figure out where do they settle on how valuations might come out. So I think in some respects, not surprising that you see this volatility. On the other hand, not to be dismissed, to watch and see what signals it's offering for tightening financial conditions, which, we are begin which we've been seeing for a while. Well, George also said the central bank does not need to ratchet up the pace of its interest rate hikes just yet hoping to send a clear and early signal to the market. I think our commitment is to communicate clearly. I think that's what the Fed chairman was doing in his press conference when he talked about uh, where we would see some of the next rate hikes. And I hope that gives the market a better sense, even though we don't know at this point how far that will go. Well, elsewhere, the former Morgan Stanley Asia chairman Stephen Roach uh, is now calling stagflation his base case scenario, adding that a 50 basis point Fed rate hike doesn't cut it uh, and the market could be heading for a rude awakening. Head online for that full story now. The IMF's managing director, Kristalina Gorgieva, has warned leaders may need to get used to the idea of battling multiple inflationary threats at once. Speaking on the sidelines of the G7 meeting of finance ministers in Bonn, Gorgieva pointed out uh, signs of longer-lasting inflation, including mounting food and energy prices caused by the war in Ukraine, along with lockdowns in China and continued strong demand out of the United States. 
Uh, let's uh, pick it up with uh, Annetta then. Annetta joins us now from Bonn. Of course, she's been covering the G7 summit there. Um, Annetta, let's get out to you. You've got a special guest with you. Yes, exactly. Good morning, Jeff. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm standing by here. I have a special guest with me, who is Pierre-Olivier Gorinchas, the chief economist of the IMF. So thank you very much for joining us this early uh, here in Bonn. Uh, we were just saying that um, yeah, the G7 is discussing a lot of topics, but especially inflation. You have been participating during the morning session yesterday. So what was like the most pressing, the, the hottest topic um, in your discussion? Well, certainly um, inflation was uh, pretty much on all of the central bankers' minds, but also the finance ministers. Uh, we have, um, you know, very elevated inflation levels in many advanced economies and also emerging markets. We heard a few days ago in the UK it's 9%, uh, for instance, which is the highest level in 40 years. Many countries we haven't seen inflation that high in 30 years or more. So clearly this is something that policymakers and, uh, are worried about. And they want to understand what's going to be happening in terms of the inflation process going forward. So there were a lot of discussions about that. And what was like the, the major lesson learned from these discussions? Are we seeing peak inflation or is that going to get worse? Well, there are expectations that inflation may peak pretty soon in a number of countries. Some of the disruptions related to supply chains, for instance, there is maybe some hope that this will ease in coming month. Um, so that would sort of release some of the price pressures. At the same time, there are a number of risks. We see the lockdowns in China that are being extended that could lead to further disruptions. We see the situation in Europe and the war in Ukraine with potential increases in energy prices and maybe food prices that's going to tr you know, trickle down in terms of uh, headline inflation. So we are expecting inflation to moderate in the second half of the year and then in 2023 but we could have bad surprises. Uh, what does it mean for the economic growth outlook? Because clearly more and more um, yeah, market participants are embracing uh, the concept of stagflation for this year, not only for Europe, but also for the United States. Well, stagflation is a reference to what happened in the 70s. And we believe at the IMF, we believe that we are in a somewhat different environment right now. So if you think about the growth rates, for instance, uh, the global growth rate, we are predicting about 3.6% for 2022. It, it's a significant downgrade compared to what we were expecting only four or five months ago. But 3.6% is a solid number. It's sort of the average growth rate the global economy had between 2011 and 2019. So our view is that we're not close to a global recession. Individual countries could have different outcomes, but we're not close to a global recession. But we have this softening of growth and this increase in inflation. And of course, that's a, that's a worry. And directly increase in prices, that's reducing households' purchasing power. It's reducing their income, how much they can put on the table. And so clearly that's having an impact on, on, on aggregate demand. Yeah, if you talk average, it's always a bit, um, it could be misleading because the dispersion is, uh, could be very wide, right? So when we talk about the major economies like the United States or Europe, what are you expecting for them? Well, for the U.S., we're, we're thinking also that there is going to be a slowdown, uh, quite significant. It's related in part to the increase in inflation and also to the response of uh, the Federal Reserve that is uh, tightening monetary policy, and we expect they will continue. And that will also cool off the economy and try to bring down these price pressures. So we're anticipating a slowdown there. 
in the European economies, we have a somewhat similar trajectory. The European Central Bank has not yet started to tighten, but they've announced that they will start possibly over the summer in July. The UK has already started. So we have different trajectories, but all going in the same direction. Central banks are getting you know, on the action. They are tightening monetary policy. They want to get a hold of uh, what's happening with inflation. Yeah, the interesting point is whether the window of opportunity for tightening is actually not like yeah, getting slimmer or shorter, at least for the Eurozone. What is your opinion here? Because we're seeing clearly the ramifications and the effects from the war in the Ukraine getting worse. Well, we have to balance two things. Yeah. If we tighten too late, then inflation could get entrenched. And that's a problem because then bringing it back down later would be more costly. If we tighten too much, then the economy can tip over into a recession. And so that's the fine line that policymakers have to walk. Right now, in the European context, I would say that there is some tightening that's been projected, that's been announced, it's going to be taking place. I think we have to be very careful about what's happening to inflation expectations. That's going to be a clear signal as to whether the broader public, firms and households, whether they think that somehow central banks have lost the plot or not. Right now, when we look at inflation expectations, what households or firms are expecting for inflation in, say, three years or five years, this has not increased very much from the 2% target. So as of now, the situation on that front is relatively, relatively good. Let's move on uh, to another topic, which is uh, also here on the agenda among the G7 finance ministers and central bankers, which is debt sustainability, especially for the emerging world. Given that dollar has appreciated that much, given that the Fed is going into the hiking cycle, so how concerned are you about potential defaults in the emerging market world? Well, there are a number of factors here that make us quite worried. So first. We have to remember we're coming out of two years of pandemics and, and do, during those two years governments have tried to support the population, they have, they have to use the fiscal space they had, many countries had relatively limited fiscal space but they had to do as much as they could. So we're coming out of the situation with, for some countries, higher debt levels, higher debt service and then we're seeing global interest rates rising so there's going to be a debt service component that is going to be increasing over time and that could tip some of, some of these countries into a difficult, put them into a, in a tight spot. So we are concerned about that. The second factor here is, as you pointed out, whenever the Federal Reserve or major central banks start hiking interest rates, then it makes the situation very, very difficult for a number of emerging market economies. Now, so far, the markets have been differentiating quite strongly between emerging market economies. Some of them have strengthened, some of them have weakened. You look at Brazil, for instance, versus uh, countries that are closer to Russia and Ukraine and more impacted. The market has been differentiated. But we are concerned that as these currencies depreciate, capital might start flowing out, interest rates might rise, some of these countries might have problems. So where are the weak spots? Because if you're saying some of these countries might have problems, like many years ago it was the LADAM crisis, also triggered by um, the Fed high tightening cycle, but also other problems. So which countries are weak? Well, it, it, without necessarily naming individual countries, I mean, we know some countries have already approached the fund. For instance, countries like Sri Lanka has, has approached the fund and is in a situation where they've suspended their debt payments. But otherwise, you can think about countries that are vulnerable because they are close trading partners of Russia and Ukraine or they are very dependent on imports of uh, wheat for instance or sort of food imports from or energy imports for, from Ukraine or they have initial debt levels that are already quite elevated 
in a relatively precarious financial situation. So there are a number of countries that we are talking to. We're monitoring what's going on. We're standing ready to assist them if they need financial assistance. Are you also looking uh, into assisting them because of the soaring food prices? Because that clearly could trigger a major crisis for many countries. Yes, there's a common initiative that was just announced a few days ago. I mean, the IMF is not directly involved with uh, sort of food supplies, but we are standing ready to provide technical assistance to help countries design programs that will help support the most vulnerable segments of the population. The low-income households in any country are really hurt by increasing food and energy prices. And so we can help countries design programs that will target help where it's needed most. And then we can provide financial assistance for those countries that have, you know, meet the parameters for, for our help. Thank you very much. And uh, have a good, uh, safe trip back to D.C., right? Thank you for having me. Um, so, guys, I'm sending it back to you. I bring you more coverage from the G7 uh, here in Bonn a little bit later during the show. Yeah, and I'm really keen to hear what the Bundesbank president, uh, Joachim Nagel, has to say. So that's going to be a fascinating conversation. Annette, thank you so much for the coverage. And you can catch that interview online at cnbc.com later today. Steve. Right, okay, we are back in Switzerland next week for a spring edition, well, late spring, early summer, of Davos, where we will be joined by a host of guests to discuss the issues affecting the world. On Monday, we're going to speak to the likes of EY's Carmine de Sibio, Deutsche Post's Frank Arpel, and also SAP Chief Executive Christian Klein. Uh, we're going to discuss China's zero COVID approach with the HKMA chairman, that is uh, Laura Char, uh, AstraZeneca chair Leif Johansson and Gavi CEO Seth Barkley, while C-suite executives from the Swiss banking heavyweights include Ralph Harmers, of course, the CEO of UBS, and the Credit Suisse chair Axel Lehmann will also join us. Absolutely. And the three of us are going to be doing double time next week because we're going to do the regular programming. But we've also got a whole slew of panels that we're covering off as well. At a time of record high inflation, spiking energy prices and an ongoing war in Ukraine. I'll be talking about the global economic outlook. That's Monday afternoon. Uh, joining me, uh, City CEO Jane Fraser, IMF Managing Director Kristalina Gorgieva and uh, Bank of France Governor Francois Villeroy de Gallo. Uh, do you know what you're doing yet? Yes, a couple of terrific panels. One on the social economy. I yep. think we all know what the social economy is after the pandemic. All that uh, work behind the scenes that really kept economies going that was really unrecognized for a long time. So I'm going to be talking about that and the value to the economy. Mm. And uh, the other big one, cybersecurity. There is a view about pre-Ukraine and post-Ukraine now in the cyber community yeah. about how you assess risk. So some terrific conversations, I think, that we're going to touch on. No, that sounds terrific. And Steve, I think, is doing some on, on clean energy. Clean energy. Yes. Uh, a perennial, always interesting to get mm. the latest updated views on, uh, on what's being said there. Ahead on the show, Chinese authorities cut a key lending rate more than expected in their latest bid to boost a slowing economy. We'll dig into that next. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. 
Welcome back to Scorebox. Let's touch base on some Japanese asset classes at the moment. Uh, the yen making a, a strong resurgence against the greenback. Uh, dollar yen trading 127.68. Uh, of course, um, it did hit 130 plus on that pairing um, just a few days ago. But the Nikkei actually moving ahead uh, very solidly this morning, 342 points, 1.3% higher despite the fact, uh, maybe because of the fact, who knows, that Japanese core CPI jumped at its fastest rate in seven years in April. It was up 2.1%. That is slightly ahead of the BOJ's 2% target for CPI. Rising energy and commodity costs are triggering broader price hikes and hitting households in the pocket. The headline figure is well behind, of course, some other developed countries and economies, but will put pressure on the central bank's ultra-loose monetary policy stance. Asian markets clawing back then some of their recent losses this morning after China cut a key lending benchmark in its latest bid to boost a slowing economy. Uh, let's get out to Sam for more on this. And, and Sam, this, this cut has been a long time in the coming. And I think the markets were, were starting to abandon hope that it was going to take place. Why do we think they've moved now? Good morning to you, Jeff. Yeah, good question. And I think this cut that we saw today, certainly to the five-year, because, of course, we saw no cut to the one-year, tells us a couple of things. One, that, of course, the PBOC is in a bit of a tricky position right now. It, of course, does want to support the economy, and particularly in the housing market, which we know is a big driver of growth. But the other thing it tells us is that they are keen to sort of keep this easing targeted, because, as I said, we saw a substantial cut to the five-year loan prime rate, much wider than the market was looking for. 15 basis points. Most analysts were only looking for around five basis points. We've got to remember that the five-year loan prime rate largely influences the prices of mortgages. And so that sort of suggests that the PBOC really now, the policymakers are very determined to try to shore up some of this growth in the housing market, particularly after we did certainly see demand remaining fragile with those new home prices actually falling on a monthly basis for the first time this year, certainly suggesting that demand is very weak because, of course, it has been exacerbated by these lockdowns. And so we have already seen easing measures in the last week or so with China allowing further cuts to home loan rates for first home buyers to try to boost some of that buyer sentiment. So this just seems to be another move now to try to help the struggling property sector. And perhaps that is offsetting some of this uh, disappointment, you could say, that might be out there in the market over the one-year loan price rate because that was actually kept steady at 3.7%. Now, we know that that is what most new and outstanding loans are actually based on, but economists have said that no cut to the one-year loan prime rate perhaps suggests that the PBOC, as I say, is taking a more targeted approach to easing now, not sort of going with these sort of broad monetary easing policies, but really stepping up financial support for areas in the economy that really need it the most, areas like the SMEs. There's also been some suggestion that perhaps the PBOC is taking a little bit more of a restrained response to easing at the moment, which is certainly what the market has been concerned about because of the weakening UN, of course, the Fed Reserve heading in the other direction. And that has been perhaps fueling some of those worries about capital outflows. But of course, these, this move today came despite actually the PBOC keeping the uh, rate on the medium term lending facility steady earlier this week, which typically acts as a guide for that loan prime rate, but no doubt 
that this cut is sending a very positive signal to the market, which, Jeff, as you clearly pointed out, uh, has certainly been waiting for a very long time for more stimulus, given the repeated policy pledges that we have seen. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.